This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Treefort 2017 was an amazing experience. Great bands, great beers, and great people. The festival takes place in the beautiful and welcoming town of Boise, Idaho, and I can't wait to go back next year. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. We recorded this panel at Treefort with Charlize Metcalf of KEXP, Jess Corigliano of Terrorbird Media, Carl Hofstetter from Joyful Noise Recordings, and Zeke Howard from The Brigade. We talked about the state of the independent music industry, and you can hear it right now on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. This is a panel on the state of the independent music industry from Treefort 2017. Hi, hello. I'm Portia Sabin. I am the host of The Future of What podcast, a podcast about the music business. And if you are not familiar with it, then I don't know why you're here. No, I'm kidding. Please, everyone, come. I have a wonderful panel today. We're going to discuss the state of the music industry in 2017, at least as it relates to us. And my first guest is Charlize... Metcalf from KEXP, which is a radio station in Seattle you may have heard of, fine radio station. Jess Corigliano, who's the co-founder of Terrorbird Media, which is located in multiple places around America at this point, although I remember when it was just an idea. (laughs) Carl Hofstetter, who runs Joyful Noise Recordings, an independent record label out of Indianapolis, Indiana, which I can say, which is good for noon. (laughs) And Zeke Howard from The Brigade, which is a digital marketing company, which is based where? We're in Portland. Oh, right. Like, just like us? Yeah, just like you. Awesome. (laughs) So, fabulous. I had no idea who this guy is, clearly. (laughs) So, we'll get started pretty much right away. What I'd like to ask everybody to do is just sort of give everybody a brief overview of how you got into the business that you are currently in. I'm so lucky to be first. First. (laughs) So... My story is I decided that first I wanted to get into news, but I, I kind of had some issues with the news. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to get into music. I just did a lot of things like making mixtapes, and I really liked MTV when it was cool. And I used to listen to this radio station called The End, and it was just such a, had a big impact on me, the DJs and stuff. and. And I started going to a college called Green River Community College, and it was all the way in Auburn. Anyway, so there was an opportunity to start hosting a local show called Local Motion, and I did that for like four years. While I was doing that, I got an internship at Kill Rock Stars, and that was really cool. And so I worked there for about two years, and then I just kept picking up radio job, so I'm going off. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I also got my start in radio. In 2001 to 2003, I was music director at my college radio station, which uh, is where I think a lot of people get their start in this industry. That person does, did, (laughs) is, I don't know. So uh, yeah, that was WSPN. And with that job, you while you're still in school, are building actual real relationships with people in the music industry. And to me, this industry is always about relationships, number one, always. And so from that experience, when I graduated, I landed an internship at what was my favorite promotion company. And I absolutely loved it. It was a dream. I worked with all my favorite bands, did a lot of work with Kill Rock Stars at the time, loved my coworkers. I never felt more inspired or motivated in my entire life. This was a small company, and we did PR and radio, and ended up, after a few years, being a co-department head, and was feeling super inspired and wanted to kind of recreate that on my own. I never had like a, oh, a five-year plan, I want to I be a 
licensing company and a publishing company and all of this, it was really just what do our artists need next and what can we do to help them? And you know, we're an 11 person company now and I like to say small so we can always kind of be nimble and make the changes we need. So Jess runs a cartel. In, in case you haven't gotten that, <laughs> she's got fingers in all pies. So for Joyful Noise, similarly, I think to Terrorbird, it was a very organic kind of growth, you know, which I guess started, you know, the, the label started as a fake label name on the back of my band CD when I was 19 years old, you know, but like it slowly just started releasing my own bands, my friends' bands, started realizing I had more aptitude for you know, the business side than I do for drumming. <laughs> and then it was probably around like 2009 or so when um, I really started after, you know, years of just losing money and taking out student loans to put out records and never making any money back. Started like developing more of like a it attitude, you know, towards like just wanting to do releases that are fun rather than like trying to discover the rules of how to run a label. <laughs> and so that's when we started doing more crazy stuff like cassette wooden box sets and, you know, just weirder, just playing with the physical formats and surprisingly, you know, sort of discovered that that was a way to get people excited about the music. Yeah, and do you find that that's some, one of the trends in the last few years is sort of a, a much bigger interest in interesting physical product? For sure, for sure. I think that's like a byproduct of the digital accessibility, you know? Like the, the desire to collect the physical object isn't really going away. It's just not necessary to listen to the music anymore. But people still wanna, <laughs> like still, people still wanna collect it, you know? People still wanna have that trophy. Exactly, they would have to put something in those shelves they <laughs> right. got at Ikea, they have all these perfectly Ikea fit shelves. records. Yeah. Right. So doing the, the weird, interesting physical products was kind of our foot in the door with a lot of bands. Our roster has always grown based on like relationships, you know, so for instance, we somehow convinced Dinosaur Jr. to let us reissue their first three records on cassette, which led to a relationship with Lou Barlow, which led to us signing Sebado for real, you know, and the and same thing happened with like Joan of Arc and Deerhoof and several of our bands that like were, that were like releasing their records more properly now, sort of started with us just having a weird idea for six-sided record or whatever the f you know <laughs> so cool so zeke how did you get started with the brigade yeah so similarly as a as a drummer so i moved to seattle in 98 started working at a burrito place with sam jane and he just signed a sub pop we did a stooges cover band and i joined love is laughter which was awesome coming from growing up following sub pop and all that stuff so we spent a year like touring it on the road and then i was realizing i wanted to get into the whole internet world. I saw it. there was like musicians are like, I got an English degree, but I'm making a ton of money in, in the internet. So I worked at Sub Pop for a year. So Megan and James Bertram hooked me up on that, helping run the online store. And then in no one moved out to New York. And once again, it's like relationships come back. So like Love is Laughter toured with uh, Lasavi Fav and um, Lifter Puller. And he, he had moved to New York and was working at a tech company before he started Hold Steady. And he got me he also hooked me up uh, with, some, with a webcast company that was like interviewing CEOs on Wall Street. <laughs> and so that was, that put enough experience beyond my lack of a degree. I dropped out of community college. So continued to play music and, and spent about 10 years in the East Coast working for some different tech startups and, and then moved back to Portland, started sharing a space with my partner Ben at Brigade and we got that going. And so same with a relationship-based business. We got introduced to someone at Spotify five years ago and did a branded app for them and then began meeting everyone else there. And so we've worked on everything from a rancid app to the Beatles launch and uh, everything in between. Yeah, and then on top of that, like music is, or playing music is still like my main passion and, and, and helping artists too. So I manage Mimicking Birds out of Portland and kind of bring what I learned on the road. <laughs> Those nights you're paying the 30 people in some small time. There's that kind of empathy I think you need and like getting really specific and conscious about decisions you make now. It's so tight with the way everything's happened the last two years. So. Don't take 
was We Think the World of You by Gospel Music. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a comment. It really helps. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? This is a panel on the state of the independent music industry from Treefort 2017. So I, I think what we're here to talk about today is, is sort of where the music industry is at, the independent music industry at least, in the last few years. And I feel like it's, we're at a very interesting point because like we all, pretty much everyone on the stage has lived through the digital revolution, right? Like the internet and downloads and then streaming and like it, all this stuff has changed. And like Jess mentioned, everybody kind of, in order to succeed in that environment, the nice part about independent companies as a rule is that we're small and we're nimble and we can be like, okay, boom, we, this isn't working. DJs, forget about it. <laughs> we're going on to something else. And also you can have ideas and you can try them out and you're not beholden, you know, you don't have shareholders that you have to please every, I mean, none of us, I don't think have shareholders. I have no shareholders, <laughs> except my kid maybe is a shareholder at some level. But anyway, the point being that we can move quickly and we can change with the times. Now I am finding, I feel like right now is a really interesting time because like you mentioned the backlash to digital, to the internet. And I feel like we're kind of in that moment right now where it's, it's like the internet was this promised land, right? It was going to be like any band can put out their music and just everyone can hear it. And it's going to be so easy. You cut out that nasty label middleman and you just go right to your fans. And instead, what we got was like this ocean and everybody's like dropping a rock into the ocean. Like your release is like poof and then it's gone. And you're like, oh, crap. Like release date comes and goes. And then you're like, that's it. Where did my music go? And why don't I have a career? <laughs> like, how did that happen? And so I think what we're finding is kind of like this pulling back a little bit. And like you said, I love, because it's true, the physical element has been nuts. Like we started doing a lot more stuff in our mail order. We also started putting out comedians, which has, you know, helped because comedians tend to be funnier but they, than musicians, sometimes, not always. 
but like they had these crazy ideas for, for merch items and we would make them and people would buy them. And I was like, Oh my God, that's a thing we can do. Like it wasn't even like when I took over killer Rockstars in 2006, we hadn't put out a vinyl album in years because vinyl was just not selling. It wasn't a thing. So I'm the one who brought vinyl back because I was like, Oh duh. Now everyone wants vinyl. Anyway, point is what have you guys noticed about this new moment that we're in with the internet? To me, I feel like it's a really exciting time like for what we do, like on the PR and the radio side. Like with music PR, I feel like there was a minute there where it was feeling pretty bleak. It was like blogs were like, it was all about premiere downloads and then everyone was just reposting the same stuff and it, it kind of even felt lazy to a point because it was just this like kind of rush to get the exclusive premiere and then everyone just kind of, I don't know, was, it felt like everyone was kind of even just posting the same stuff because that was what was buzzy and that was getting the clicks and now there seems to be this push towards authenticity and I think now that we've kind of settled into, okay, like writers, it's, it doesn't matter about premieres. Like premieres kind of don't matter in the same way. And that's not where people are going to kind of like get an advanced download or whatever. Everything's just on Spotify and it's fine. And so I feel like with this digital shift, there's way more interesting like content coming from music journalism now from it. Like I feel like people are actually wanting to write more long form stories. I mean, it ties into what you were saying about, I think there's this kind of like, there was an over-enthusiasm towards like all this digital stuff and what it was going to bring. And now it's like, oh, wait, we miss vinyl. We miss physical products. We miss music writing. We miss criticism. We miss, you know, oh, that's that's why we are wanting to read these articles. It's not just to grab a track, right? So there's, more, I feel like there are more like genre-specific blogs and it's not just about these big, big outlets. It's about like smaller outlets curating a vibe and and like getting more people to kind of come to it. And I, and I think, to me, that's like super exciting. And I feel like that's a, a definitely a result of, this kind of everything's just at your fingertips already, so we need something more, and that something is going to be content in the form of, uh, at least in the journalism landscape, in the in the form of these interesting articles about scenes and like activism and like topics that matter to artists. Um, and there's all these other layers, you know, and unique physical product, and like there's all these other layers beyond just these platforms to get the music out there. From the label side, I think that the digital revolution or whatever, like the access to music, the ability for anybody to record an album and distribute it has really like given labels, like it's redefined the purpose of a record label. It's probably being redefined all the time, but like I don't see record labels as being, you know, financiers with distribution like they used to be, you know, it's more like the value I think is more in the curation, like the label as a filter for all of this music for, you know, so that like, you know, the public can't make sense of a thousand records whizzing by them every day, you know? So, like, having a label, I think, as a way to, like, build trust with music fans, you know, is something that I'm trying to focus on, at least. I think you're right. And I think that's something I've noticed, too, is that filters are more important in every form that they come. And, Charlize, you probably noticed, too, with radio that people are listening specifically, like let's say to your show, a local show, to find out what's going on in the scene. Because like Jess said, I think it's more about scenes. And we're at Treefort, which is an amazing example of a scene, you know? And, and then one that the whole rest of the world doesn't necessarily know about. But you guys have some amazing artists and obviously a lot of goodwill in the community. I mean, I'm like so jazzed on Treefort right now. I've never been here before. And I'm just like, ah, this is how it should be. Like the donut shop says Treefort 2017 in the window. like. Everybody's so supportive, it's so rad. Just real quick, I think what he said about trust is really important and it applies across the board. I think because for everything there is a new like digital platform or an app that can like do it for you. Whether it, you know, no matter what from whether it's music or services, anything. Like on like the music fan side but also on the industry side from you know, oh, just sign up here and then da 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 happens on its own. Or on the radio side, like, oh, well, you don't need radio anymore because there's Spotify. Like, none of that is true. It's these, these tools exist and that's cool. And it's about kind of human beings and, you know, creating that trust to maximize what those tools can offer while creating like that customized, unique, real relationship that we keep talking about. So, KEXP just moved into a new home. And you may have heard about it. So it was a $15 million campaign that we went through. And it basically was a separate, like, so we have pledge drives that we do. We do 
two a year. And this $15 million campaign, I think, was over the course of almost three years. And it was exclusive money that would be made for our new home. So we had to move because the space that we were living in, I think the area was going to be developed and sold. And we just needed a new place. And so we started really thinking about what this new home could look like. And it's a sign of the times. It's like radio used to be something that you would just listen to. And now we actually have a public space. So when we told listeners about the new space, we were like, this is your new home. You are helping to pay for it, which means we want you to be able to come here during our business hours. And so now we are completely open to the public. You can see everything. You can even see us working. You can see our library. You can come into our public gathering space where we have a record shop. We have Light in the Attic there. And we have La Marzocco, which is a coffee shop. And it's a really inviting workplace. So you can also listen to the radio. But one of the most important things about our new home is we have a public viewing space. So that's where you can see basically all of the in-studios that we book. So I think we book over 400 in-studios a year and at least two to three a day are open to the public so people can come and just see it for free. So that's one of the things that we have developed but we also still have podcast those are downloadable for free. We still have Song of the Day, which is where John, Cheryl, and Kevin, who are our main DJs, pick a song from a band, and it's free to you to download. So we had to change because just listening to the radio is just, I don't know, maybe, maybe the word obsolete in a way, but, but not because there is... It's the same thing as one of you were talking about, the physicalness of like a CD or vinyl, probably vinyl, I would say vinyl, and cassettes, we had to offer something to people in a physical way so that we could still keep up and still, you know, have you care about us. But that's such a testament. I mean, you're totally right. It's like we're in a new age where the people are, are like willing to contribute. I mean, we understand from crowdfunding, right, the success of crowdfunding that... Yeah, people that want people to be are, part of a community. They want to be part of a community, yeah. exactly. And, and you guys, I noticed, are doing a subscription service. Yeah, we started that like five years ago, and it was huge. Like, that was the thing that allowed me to quit my day job. Yeah. That's amazing. That's very cool. So, Zeke, what, what's going on with you guys? I mean, is, is, your, is your focus entirely on Spotify at this time? No, we're... We're working with other companies like Mozilla and a little bit with Nike, Global Citizens, so some of the nonprofits as well. On the music side, though, like like with Mimicking Birds, actually, instead of taking tour support in the last record, we did an Indiegogo to get a van as they were touring in a Subaru, and we're able to raise about eleven thousand dollars and get the van. But I think the most powerful thing was all the, those three hundred fifty fans getting them like custom packages and all these different things. Like, there's that. I think that special level of engagement that you get that you wouldn't get out of just a normal marketing campaign even. So, But even Spotify is a perfect example of this kind of scenification or, or compartmentalization, whatever, whatever I'm trying to say, because the playlist thing has been massive for Spotify. I mean, it turns out people really want... I love my whatever weekly yeah, playlist that weekly, I get. Yeah. Discovery play. I love that. I'm like, oh, wow, I don't know that band. That sounds cool. Yeah. You know? And it's just neat. It's like, oh, it's... Person, you know, personalized for you, Portia. Mm-hmm. Like somebody cares. That's so yeah, yeah. neat. I don't yeah, care yeah. if it's and a like, machine. Yeah, and uh, I'm so happy. And it shows like the power of science. Like those are MIT guys that made a computer that could listen. Echonest, and we were doing some work with them before they got bought by Spotify. And they were they were fueling iTunes. I think a bunch of other services using their data. And that's it's also like that. Discover Weekly was the first product they made. And a lot of times, there's these companies buy a data company and nothing happens. But they built this like huge product that's amazing and works great. And I think the other thing, they launched a playlist release radar. And so that one pulls in new releases by artists you listen to. So it's pretty powerful. Like if you're a band, as far as like the cadence of your releases, if you get a single out every four months, it's going to get pulled into that automated playlist as well, which is a little even tighter 
from a curation standpoint? It, it's been a scary time. Like the last 10 years or so was a scary time to do the music business, I think, on one level because it seemed like we were losing a lot, right? We were like, we can't sell physical product like we used to. You know, we can't make money the old-fashioned way. And then Apple, you know, iTunes decided that they're going to go streaming. And we're like, oh, my God, our download income has crashed. So it's been a challenge. And I think especially for artists and everybody here works with artists. And it's like we we all know that their incomes are now coming from multiple places. So I feel like it's important for us as, you know, people in the industry to help artists understand like all of their income streams and where they can look for money. And what have you guys found? I mean, I'm interested just in the licensing because I've always felt like licensing has been such you know, it's like artists tell me they're like, oh, we'll just get a license. And I'm like, well, you could get hit by lightning, too. Like, it's a crapshoot, right? It is. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like there's still huge opportunity there. I think the main difference is that now everyone assumes their music is licensable and that because it's licensable, it's going to get a bunch of syncs. That's not how it works. You know, it still has to be the right song for that scene. There's still all these other factors that go into it. So I think, to me, there's massive opportunity. There's more, t there's more TV shows now than ever before. Like, the just quantity of opportunity out there, definitely in like the, the TV landscape, is huge. And that means more opportunities for bands to land sinks. People commonly complain about, oh, well, fees must be going down, and like, da-da-da-da-da. And yeah, that's true. That's partly our are doing. I mean, I feel like so often, and part of this, part of this is kind of the beauty of the independent music industry, where you kind of, as I said, you just kind of jump in and do it. When licensing was taking off, a lot of people were jumping in to do it, and there was such this kind of scramble to get syncs. Oh, we need a sync around the release, and we'll just offer to do it for super cheap or for free. And like, if we just can say that we got a bunch of syncs, that'll lead to other syncs, and then the money will come. And there was this kind of false narrative about that is how you do it. And as a result, people offering to do stuff for lower fees, all that does is then when budgets are being renewed for like a TV season or whatever, the higher ups are like, oh, we don't need to allot that much money for music, huh? People are just like doing it. Cool. Season gets renewed, smaller music budget. We did that. So, I, I mean, I think that there's been a push in the other other direction. Music, there's an ecosystem there. Music supervisors, they want those budgets. They want to be able to keep syncing a lot of music and giving opportunities for bands and their music fans too. And so I think there is kind of a swing in the other direction now of like valuing the art and wanting to get cool opportunities for you know bands where the music is working. But for a label or a band to think that just because they're releasing a record, they're automatically going to get a lot of things, that is just false. And it doesn't matter how big or buzzy you are, like sometimes if you're at to a certain like huge level, fine, it'll like maybe have to get shoved in there somehow because the like director's kid is a big fan and like whatever. But other than that, like it honestly, none of that matters. They don't typically, I mean, there are exceptions, but release date doesn't matter, single doesn't matter. The song has to fit, period. That's it. And yeah, and so yeah, every band's not gonna get a lot of sings and you can't count on that in that way. Yeah, I agree. And like with Mimic and Birds, we work with Ghost Town out of LA. And what we really like about them is that if they don't have a perfect fit, they don't respond or, you know, which I like that they're not over, like overly trying to sell something that doesn't work. And like we're seeing that's requests. A, that's a really, yeah, quick way to, to annoy music supervisors. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know this isn't what you asked for, but try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I love. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And, and it is about patience. Yeah. Like we're two years in and one of the songs from the last record, Bloodlines, was in Shameless recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, something really cool with that is that like, they list the playlist on their website too. So like Fat Possum and Glacial Pace was getting noticed that they were getting downloads on iTunes. Like, why is this happening? That's a really good point too. <laughs> this because, is like two years in, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it's sometimes less about, I mean, it's obviously amazing when you get that sync that's during like a montage and you could hold up Shazam and like everyone could hear the song. That's great. But even, even when it's more in the background, they're so good now about... Um, like play like Spotify playlists for you know the season of the show or like yeah. you know social media posting about the songs or just like resources online you know listing all the songs in a show people absolutely find out about music that way even if it's a background use which I think is is awesome and the the internet companies that are like funding these shows I think is awesome too because they're more artistic and I think that matches also with like independent music and artists and yeah yeah I also think another thing that's sort of I've noticed that's happening recently is a renewed, and it might have something to do with the renewed interest in vinyl or the bigger 
number of people who are buying vinyl is sort of a renewed interest in liner notes and who did what and who played what on an album and who recorded it and where was it recorded and all this stuff. And that has been really exciting because in my office, we spend like the whole day on all music or discogs just trying to find details about stuff. And it's really difficult sometimes to like find out who did something and where they did it. But that's part of being like a real music geek is like, oh yeah, that drummer, I remember his old band. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what you don't get from Spotify. Exactly, you know? or yeah. Apple, thank you. Right, so I mean, I, I think that's one of those, yeah, that's that level of music nerddom, you know, is something that like is really uh, brought into focus with like the physical objects, you know. Like people don't just geek out about being able to play a record on a turntable. It's about the whole experience of, you know, experiencing that album in a different way than just streaming it online, you know, while you work out or whatever. That's true. And I mean, not to go off on a completely different tangent, but I did get to go to a Cascade Record pressing the other day and watch a splatter record get made. It was so cool. I was like, oh my God, they have to do it by hand. The guy stands there and like drops the pellets on and then it presses and it, ah, oh my God. And I feel like we're in this like new artisan, like it's so cool. Like this is so much more fun. This music industry is so much more fun than when I started, you know. Through the walls and the floors and the streets, there's a wave that came crashing down to beat all other life from the coast. In a poem where a bragging god was Pacific Bray by Horse Feathers. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it, Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to the future of what? This is a panel on the state of the independent music industry from Treefort, 2017. Anyway, we've got a few minutes. I don't know if anyone wants to do questions or if you just want us to keep yakking about what we know, because we could do that. Yeah, I guess you guys were talking about the digital space of music and succeeding in the space, and I was wondering what you guys are thinking about the artists who do succeed 
nowadays, especially like someone like Chance the Rapper who like doesn't have a label and does everything online. Or there are a lot of like urban rap artists who just have like these huge MySpace followings and build them up that way. I guess I want to see like what do you guys notice in the music industry that they're doing that you're like, ah oh, man, I wish I thought to do that. Or like what what is helping them succeed in this new landscape? Great question. Dumb luck. I mean, it, from my perspective, like I mean, for every Chance the Rapper, there's a million people that did the exact same thing and it just didn't work out. You know, I mean. No, that's, I think that's my perspective on it. I, like, I think I you're right. I mean, that's the unfortunate part. It's who was the who was the band? Clap your hands, say yeah. Right, remember that. And it's like as soon as clap your hands, say yeah came out, everyone was like, nobody has to have any business anymore in the music business because now you can just be clap your hands, say yeah. And then I was like, okay, where, when's the next one? And then there wasn't one. You know, so it's like these are flashes in the pan. These are anomalies. This is not actually how things really work. And that's the sad part. You know, on some level. Right. That said, I do think that like a direct to fan relationship is more important now than ever, you know, both for Absolutely. labels and for artists. That speaks to everything we've been seeing, which is that it's relationships and it's also using the platforms. I mean, that didn't happen in a vacuum, like, you know, and so it's the combination of those tools that exist and SoundCloud and like whatever platforms are out there to get your music out there and connecting with fans and in some cases, like utilizing teams that have relationships like behind the scenes that help that happen. And so I think that in all those instances, it doesn't just like, oh, you put it out there and then it suddenly explodes. Like there is a lot of work on the back end, even if it's not the traditional route, that all comes back to the combination of technology and relationships and connections and authenticity. And those are, I think, like the themes. And yeah, I think that what happened with Chance like is the best case scenario with all of that and kind of epitomizes that working. Just on the radio end, a couple things. So KEXP has been known to just find a band and then just kind of blow them up. And the next thing you know, they get signed to a label. So let's see, a couple examples are Yay Sayer, Arcade Fire, and Vampire Weekend. None of those bands had labels. They were just bands that the station really liked. And one of the most special things about KEXP is every DJ who is on air gets to pick their own music and program their own shows. So, for example, my show is Audio Oasis, and it's the local show, and I'm basically looking for any local band. That's basically why I'm here at Treefort. I want to see bands from Portland. I want to see bands from Idaho, and I even saw a band from the UK that I want to take back to KXP and tell them how awesome they were. So... Having bands online just through, I love SoundCloud. SoundCloud is a great resource for me. Bandcamp is a really good resource for me. And I will admit, Facebook is a really good resource for me. The reason why Facebook is a good resource is because I'm connected to a lot of bands online and they play shows. So they play shows with other local bands. Sometimes they're not from Seattle, or maybe they are from Seattle. Maybe they're from Idaho or whatever. So I can just go, and when they put links into the Facebook event, I just check it out. Next thing you know, I've got tons of new content for my show. So, yeah, that's, that's all I want to say. Oh, you want to come up here? I just am curious. My husband and I own a, a venue, and we haven't talked a ton about You just started to mention it, but how live performances play a role as the person that's at the venue on the ground every day, you guys are kind of always the people in my mind that are like behind the desk. How do those two roles interact in the industry? Yeah. Good question. Being out here has been such an amazing experience for me because watching all of these bands play live has inspired me so much to go back and to say to KXP, hey, we should really bring this band over from the UK or we should really bring this band over from Portland because their performances are really amazing. And now, speaking, you know, like I mentioned content, I have so many things to think about when I'm programming my show. And just even in Seattle, going to shows just watching the bands, make sure that they're at a good level to play live on air or to become inspired to play them on air. And I think that a live performance is probably one of the most important things to at least airplay for KEXP. And it just really, there is something about seeing a band play live 
at night when they're really in their element. And it's just, <laughs> it's been really cool for me. I've seen a lot of shows, so I, I think it's really important and I really like it and it's really cool. I'm very grateful for being in the position that I'm in because if I wasn't, I would not be able to afford all the shows that I'm able to go to. So, <laughs> so a real supportive community uh, that, you know. On the radio side of things, relates to what you're saying, but for us, there's a huge connection between like college non-commercial radio promotion and live shows and touring and things like that. And for us, that's always been a huge focus of campaigns because I think some of the, the greatest value is, you know, we have relationships with these, with music directors and in like every city across North America and we focus on touring artists and setting up interviews and setting up in studios and doing whatever we can for those artists to get on-air promotion so people can have the experiences that Charlize was just talking about. And so stations can get that content in order to for the stations to stay relevant, like she was talking about, but also for individuals in that community to actually experience music, which nothing digital can replace that. Like watching a show on Facebook Live is not the same as being at a show in real life. And that's nothing will ever get in the way of that. So super important to do what we can to foster that. Yeah, I think from the label side, there's nothing that really compares to a band going on a, a long tour. You know, like the, the record will benefit more from that than from any amount of publicity or, or like advertising, you know? Because I just think it's, I sometimes think about touring as like the most effective marketing that you can ever do, you know? Like even if the tour itself isn't profitable, like it's sometimes worth it to take a loss, you know, uh, or to like give the band, you know, you know, some income to offset the tour just so they can be out there playing to 20 people. Because like, if they really blow those 20 people away, they're gonna tell everybody that they know. And that's like, I think that's the only, it facilitates word of mouth about the band. And I think that like, that's the word of mouth from trusted friends is how everyone learns about music. Yeah, fans are the only ones that can get you new fans. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And it will be interesting seeing things like, we use fan insights to see how many listeners or actual fans we have in specific cities. So it can kind of help when you're planning a tour. And I think like we're talking about like as Spotify releases more products for artists and management to reach those super fans and let them know about a concert. Cause I think that's a hard thing is that there's, it's so hard to reach people and let them know you're actually even playing in a town. So it'll be interesting seeing new ways to do that. Yeah. I think that's a great, great point. I mean, the live show is everything. And, you know, whenever I ha talk, I mean, I talk about this so much that it's really boring and I'm sure people are really tired of hearing about it, but it's like, this is your job if you're a band and this is how you do your job, right? It's, it's critical. This is how you're going to gain fans. This is, you're going to have, this is going to be your career. And if you want to do this as a job, this is what it looks like. It looks like X number of months on the road. And yeah, maybe the first few tours are hard and maybe you miss your girlfriend and maybe you have to sleep on floors and maybe only 20 people come or 10 or five. But, you know, if, you, if you're great and you love it, next time there'll be more, you know. I have to quote this interview that I did with Tao from the Get Down Stay Down because she reminded me of an incident that I had forgotten years ago. We used to manage her and we also put her out on the label. And she called my husband from the road and she said, Adam, the bass player, is frying eggs on the sidewalk. She's like, this sucks. <laughs> and, he was, and he said to her, he said, it'll never be worse than it is right now. And she said, and it wasn't. And then she went on, you know, and she's got this terrific career and this is, you know, her life. And, and, but I was just like, oh, thank you for reminding me of that story because that's exactly how this, but that's the truth of this. It's like, yeah, this can suck, but you got to push through because this is your job. The music geekery that you referred to where you know the ins and outs of all a band's history and how things are made and how to best listen to it. What are your needs from your individual perspectives for that music geekery. Oh, the, the super, those, oh, the those super are the fan. people that, oh, so yeah. we've got, uh, yeah, yeah. So there are a hundred people that pay us a hundred bucks a month to pre-buy the first hundred copies of any of our releases. Those people are the super nerdy people that know like every variant and they want, they know more about the label than I do. Like. And they're great because they really give a shit about this music. And even like the new bands, like they're automatically on board, you know? 
and they're like they're just excited about discovering new stuff and having like meaningful music. So I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's that's sort of who we. I mean, it's funny because like we've been talking about you know scenes and compartmentalization and everything, and part of it is I think we're 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 finding a movement towards super serving super fans. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So it's like it's okay if we only make a hundred of something because we know we're going to sell the hundred of something to these hundred people. Right. Yeah. And, and it's and like, that's okay. It, allows it used us to, to be not okay. Real, yeah. Right. And it allows us to take chances on the younger bands too. So like now, like the label has enough fans to where we know, even if it's a brand new band that no one's ever heard of, they have zero audience. We know we can sell at least 200 copies, you know? So, but that allows us to press 500 records and not lose money on it. You know, then that's like at least a starting point for a band. Exactly. Know? So KEXP is a nonprofit listener-supported radio station. What that means is 60% of our just funding comes from people, just and we call them donors. And then the other 20% is underwriting. The other 20% is like grants. And our super fans are our donors. And it's pretty amazing because we do... We have amplifiers. Amplifiers are probably probably our super super fans. So they give every month. It just gets taken out of their account. And then some donors, you know, just give during the drive because we talk about it for a full week. And so but those are those are our people. We can't survive without them. Do those people get like different levels of access or anything? It's not access, it's more like what like kind of like what you get. So maybe access. We have like a VIP club concert. I think we've booked some of your bands to do that. And so what that is, is it's an exclusive show that happens during the day. So it's usually like noon, 1 p.m. And it's usually like a really big band or somebody that we've had a long-term relationship with. So I think our last one was the Joy Formidable. And it's about 300 people that get to come in and they get to see the show and then go about their day, but they get like four a year. And then we also do things like Donor Appreciation Night at our concerts at the Mural, which is our, it's our summer concert series that we put on in partnership with Seattle Center. So that happens in August and we just kind of like give away things. And then we also have like gifts that you get when you give t-shirts, buttons. There's a lot more. It's online, kxp.org. <laughs> Well, we are out of time. Thank you guys so much, and thanks to the panel so much for coming out and doing this today. Thanks, you guys. Thank you.
That was Kill My Blues by the Corin Tucker Band. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're excited to announce that The Future of What? is a member of Jabberjaw Media. Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. Recently, Jabberjaw added five new podcasts to the network, including three new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-focused podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast from New York. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows, which have been part of the network since its inception. Head over to JabberjawMedia.com for more information on all these shows. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard gospel music, horse feathers, Corin Tucker Band, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.